Brought to you by Capital One, where you can open a savings account in about five minutes and earn five times the national average. Just imagine, five times more savings toward that overdue home edition, maybe even an addition on that edition. This is Banking Reimagined. What's in your wallet? Capital One and a member FDIC. It's Thursday, the 13th of February, 2020. I'm Edward McBride, The Economist's Asia Editor. Welcome to Editor's Picks, where you can hear three of the defining stories from the paper. They're read aloud, so you can listen on the go. Our cover this week looks at the real and growing possibility of a united Ireland. The idea holds a romantic appeal far beyond a small corner of northwestern Europe. The Irish diaspora includes more than 20 million Americans. For many years, unification was never more than a Republican fantasy. But this week, Sinn Féin won the most first preference votes in the Republic's election. The country needs a plan to make unionists feel welcome in a united Ireland. Next, in Germany, Angela Merkel's presumed successor quits as party boss. The Chancellor should stand aside. And finally, our Buttonwood columnist looks at the world through the eyes of options traders. The stories you're about to hear are just a sample of what's on offer in the paper. With a subscription, you can read or listen to all of what we do. So please subscribe. Go to economist.com slash radio offer to get your first 12 issues for $12 or £12. First up. Could a united Ireland become a reality? For most of the century since Ireland gained independence from Britain, control of the country has alternated between two parties. On February 8th, that duopoly was smashed apart when Sinn Féin got the largest share of first preference votes in the Republic's general election. The party, with links to the Irish Republican Army, or IRA, which bombed and shot its way through the 1970s, 1980s and 1990s, won with a left-wing platform that included promises to spend more on health and housing. Yet it did not hide its desire for something a lot more ambitious. Our core political objective, its manifesto read, is to achieve Irish unity and the referendum on unity which is the means to secure this. Scottish independence has grabbed headlines since Brexit, but it is time to recognise the chances of a different secession from the United Kingdom. Sinn Féin's success at the election is just the latest reason to think that a united Ireland within a decade or so is a real and growing possibility. That prospect means something far beyond the island of Ireland. The Irish diaspora includes more than 20 million Americans. Parties to ethnic conflicts across the world have long found common cause with Northern Ireland's Roman Catholics, who contend that the separation from the South is an illegitimate vestige of 500 years of incompetent and often callous domination from London. Ireland, source of pubs, poets, playwrights and too many Eurovision songs for anyone's good, has soft power to rival a country many times its size. Until today, however, unification has never been more than a Republican fantasy. 
Even as the IRA waged a bloody campaign in the 20th century, the North's constitutional status was cemented by a solid Protestant majority and the financial and military backing of the British state. The Good Friday Agreement of 1998 took the heat out of the struggle, bringing an end to the Troubles, which had claimed over 3,500 lives. Many Catholics were content to have representation in Northern Ireland's government thanks to that agreement, and to see their culture, flag and sports celebrated and subsidised. The Protestants have their terrorists too, and a campaign for unification was thought to risk opening old wounds with bloody consequences. Brexit is one reason all this has changed. The North voted against, but the biggest unionist party and England voted for. Nationalists were not the only ones to be angered by the current Home Secretary, who suggested using the threat of food shortages to soften up the South in the negotiations, heedless of the famine in the 1840s when all of Ireland was under British rule. Brexit also creates an economic border in the Irish Sea between Northern Ireland and Britain, even as it keeps a united Ireland for goods. Although services will become harder to trade with the South, trading goods will be easier than with Britain. In that the North's six counties are affected more by what happens in Dublin, the value of having a say in who governs there will grow. The pressure for unification is about more than Brexit. Northern Ireland's census in 2021 is likely to confirm that Catholics outnumber Protestants for the first time. The Republic has also become more welcoming. The influence of the Catholic Church has faded dramatically and society has become more liberal. Over the past three decades, restrictions on contraception have been lifted and gay marriage has been legalised. All this explains why support for unification in Northern Ireland appears to have risen in recent years. In some polls, respondents show roughly equal support for it and the status quo. That leads to the last reason for thinking that unification is more likely. Even though the Good Friday Agreement reconciled some Catholics to remaining in the United Kingdom, it also set out how the North could peacefully rejoin the Republic. A British Secretary of State, who thinks it likely that a majority favours unification, is bound to call a vote on the North's constitutional status – to change the Republic's constitution, another referendum would be required in the South. The EU has already said that Northern Ireland could rejoin the bloc under Ireland's membership after such a vote, meaning that for Northern Irish voters, a referendum on Irish unity is also a second referendum on Brexit. Unlike an independent Scotland, which would have to go it alone, at least until the EU agreed to admit it, Northern Ireland would immediately rejoin a larger, richer club from which it could win big subsidies, if not perhaps as big as the subsidy it gets from Westminster today. There are obstacles and uncertainties. Sinn Féin's recent success may turn some in the North against unification. Brexit may turn out to have less effect than expected. A British Secretary of State 
may use the wriggle room in the Good Friday Agreement to hold off calling a referendum. Many British politicians worry that such a vote would be an administrative headache or, worse, provoke violence. So do their Irish counterparts, barring Sinn Féin, though they must always be seen to be fully behind unification. Yet sooner than most people expect, the momentum for a united Ireland could come to seem unstoppable. If Scotland chooses independence, many in Northern Ireland would lose their ancestral connection to Britain. If the government in Westminster persistently refused to recognise that there was a majority in favour of unification in Northern Ireland, that could be just as destabilising as calling a referendum. The island of Ireland needs a plan. The priority should be to work out how to make unionists feel that they have a place in a new Ireland. Work is needed on the nuts and bolts of unification, including how to, and indeed whether to, merge two health systems, one of which is free, the armed forces and police services, and what to do about the North's devolved assembly. It helps that the Republic has a fine record for the sort of citizen-led constitutional consultations that might help sort things out. Politicians from Britain and Ireland need to start talking too. The price of ending violence two decades ago was for Northern Ireland, the Republic and Britain to jointly set out a political route to a united Ireland. If the people of the North and the Republic choose that path, the politicians must follow it. Upwork has the world's largest network of independent professionals. Let me just close this real quick. So if you need a back-end developer, a UI designer, or a project manager for six days or six months, Upwork is how. Hey, I have this room booked at noon. I'm just wrapping up here. Upwork professionals have the flexibility and capability to work from anywhere. Yeah, it's 1201. It's all yours. Which is nice if you're already low on conference rooms. Plus, they're proven, rated, and reviewed. When you need in-demand talent on demand, Upwork is how. Next, the race to succeed Angela Merkel. Foreign newsreaders might have celebrated, but otherwise there was little to cheer when Anne-Gret Kramp-Karrenbauer, universally known as AKK, thanks to her tongue-twisting name, announced on February the 10th that she would resign as leader of Germany's ruling Christian Democrats, or CDU, and not stand as its candidate for Chancellor at the next election. By forcing her party to confront its deep divisions, Miss Kramp-Karrenbauer has thrown German politics into a new era of uncertainty. Miss Kramp-Karrenbauer was tripped up by a debacle in the East German state of Thuringia, where the CDU had voted with the far-right alternative for Germany, or AFD, to install a member of a third party as state premier. This dam break was the first time AFD votes had secured such an office, so horrified Germany that Miss Kramp-Karrenbauer had to try to repair the damage. But her efforts floundered. The party split and she was undermined when Angela Merkel, the Chancellor, chimed in to condemn the result from a state visit to Pretoria, over 5,000 miles, that's 8,000 kilometres away. Miss Kramp-Kauenbauer's unsteady leadership had already left her future in doubt. A recent appointment as Defence Minister, a job she will retain, did little to help. But Thuringia tipped the balance. The decision, she said, had matured in her for some time. 
In 2018, Mrs Merkel quit the CDU leadership after 18 years. When the party elected Miss Cramp Karrenbauer to succeed her, the road to the Chancellery looked clear. Her decision to bow out thus blows German politics wide open. What happens next is unclear. Miss Cramp Kauenbauer wants to remain in charge while the party follows an old timetable to choose its candidate for Chancellor at the next election, due in autumn 2021. But that could mean she hangs around until a CDU Congress in December, and few MPs believe their party can dither that long. Markus Soda, leader of the Christian Social Union, or CSU, the CDU's Bavarian partner, urges a faster pace, fearing an extended airing of the CDU's agonies would affect his own party's fortunes. Mrs Merkel's decision in 2018 to split the job of Chancellor and party leader is starting to look like a grave misjudgment. In a rare, if camouflaged, flash of disloyalty towards her mentor, Ms Kramp Kauenbauer said as much in her resignation speech. The positions of leader and Chancellor candidate should now be fused, she said. Yet aside from the procedural complexities, the CSU must back a joint Chancellor candidate but has no role in the CDU's leadership race. Whoever takes up the job will face the same problem that bedeviled Miss Cramp Kauenbauer. How to retain authority when a real power resides with a Chancellor who may be in office until the end of next year. With her succession plans in ruins, some say the best way for Mrs Merkel to clean up the mess she caused would be to resign, probably triggering an election. But this is unlikely in stability-obsessed Germany, and so the contenders to lead the CDU and or CSU into the next election will have to tread carefully. Besides Mr Soda, who is probably happy with his perch in Munich, three names stand out. Start with Armin Laschet, the Premier of North Rhine-Westphalia, affable, moderate and subtly subversive. Mr Laschet's biggest asset is his control of Germany's most populous state and the CDU's largest branch. As a country, it would be the EU's sixth biggest economy. In style and substance, Mr Laschet would represent the closest thing to continuity Merkel, which is precisely what puts off a large chunk of the CDU membership. A flintier proposition would be Friedrich Merz, a former leader of the CDU's parliamentary group. The plain-speaking Mr Merz quit politics for business in 2009, only to make a spectacular return in 2018 when he gave Ms Kramp Karrenbauer a close run for the party leadership. He has maintained a steady profile since, flying to party meetings around Germany, often personally he has a pilot's licence, where adoring crowds lap up his pro-business, socially conservative line. Mr Mertz reckons that fishing in the pool of AFD support can restore the CDU to over 35% of the vote. Early polls give him a head start. The final contender is Jens Spahn, the 39-year-old health minister who also stood in 2018. Mr Spahn made his name as an abrasive right-winger on economics and migration, but has mellowed into a hard-working official with a loyal following. Unlike Mr Mertz, who carries an unmistakable whiff of the 1990s, Mr Spahn can credibly claim to stand for a new start. The air in Berlin is thick with scheming and the CDU is quivering with anxiety. Germany's original Volksparty, People's Party, capacious enough for everyone, now risks splintering across its many fault lines. Centrist versus Conservative, for and against Merkelism, how to handle the AFD in the East. Thuringia remains unsolved and may not be a one-off. Some in the party fear further infighting might cause the CDU to fall behind the surging Greens.
That seems unlikely. For all its problems, the CDU is still likely to provide Germany's next Chancellor. That will give the succession race the fevered air of a party primary in a safish seat. Yet there is a palpable contrast with 2018, when Messrs Metz and Spahn immediately declared their interest and the prospect of internal competition electrified the CDU. So far, the same pair have merely hinted at possible candidacies, while Mr Laschet has kept his counsel. As all three hail from North Rhine-Westphalia, CDU peacemakers hope they might broker a deal among themselves, rather than air the party's cleavages in a public contest. There is zero appetite among my colleagues to go into a divisive leadership election, because it risks tearing us apart, says Andreas Nick, a CDU MP. During Mrs Merkel's long reign, the CDU's repeated election wins trumped concerns over her mushy centrism and lethargic leadership. Now the CDU must ask itself what sort of party it wants to be in a far more complex political scene. The disruptive potential is much bigger than most realise, says Andreas Ruder, a historian at the University of Mainz and CDU member. For many months, the tensions inside the CDU have been bubbling away like subterranean magma. After Ms. Cramp Karrenbauer's decision, they threatened to erupt. And finally, looking through the eyes of options traders. Every stoner knows or has bored you silly about the third eye. It is the imaginary oracular organ you develop as a side effect of taking hallucinogens. The data from hazy late-night discussions in college dorms in the 1960s are quite clear on this. The straight-laced are too middle of the road to grasp what is really going on in the world. The third eye allows you to see what they simply cannot. Every investor could use a third eye, but there is one type who can claim to need it the most – Options traders. They have to keep one eye on the most likely outcome and one eye on each of the best and worst scenarios. A lot of the time, the middle outcome, the average, the midpoint, the most common, is a good predictor. But for some things, some of the time, the middle lies on shaky ground. This is the world in which having options, or the right to buy or sell assets at a predetermined price, is most valuable and the action that matters is not in the middle, but at the fringes. To understand why, imagine you had to bet on the height of the next man to walk into the coffee shop you are sitting in. A good guess would be 1.75 metres, that's 5 foot 9 inches, which is the average height of an adult male in America. It is likely that you would be wrong, but not by a whole lot. Many of the men who could walk in will be close to average height, very many will be an inch or two below or above it, and only very few will be a lot shorter or taller. The middle, the average, is a good predictor of how something entirely random will turn out. A throw of two dice is similar. There are 36 possible pairs of numbers. Some throws are more likely than others. There are six ways to throw a seven, but only one way to throw either a two or a twelve. If you display each possible throw by how often it occurs, it will follow the outline of a special kind of bell curve, known as a normal distribution. A lot of very different kinds of measures, IQ, exam scores, height, also look like this. A feature is that the values deviate from the average in an ordered way. 
Two-thirds of dice throws, 24 out of 36, are within one standard deviation of the average throw, i.e. within a range of 5 to 9. In a normal distribution, 68% of outcomes are within one standard deviation of the average and 95% are within two. The standard deviation, volatility, is a key concept in options trading. The VIX, or Volatility Index, is the best-known gauge for it. It is the level of volatility derived from the price of options on the S&P 500 share index. Put options confer on a buyer the right to sell the index at a specified strike price. Call options confer the right to buy it. Key inputs to the value of an option are expected volatility and the gap between the strike price and the index price. The more violently prices move, the more likely the gap between the two will be bridged, in which case the option pays off. If the VIX says that implied volatility is 14, as it does now, traders expect an annual standard deviation of 14% in equity prices. The level of implied volatility depends on the weight of buyers and sellers. Vol sellers, in effect, supply insurance. They are betting on the middle that the world will stay regular and normal, or become more so. People active in the options market describe all investment strategies as if they were options trades. To buy corporate bonds with low spreads, for instance, is like selling volatility. You get a low premium and cross your fingers it doesn't default. Vol buyers, in contrast, seek insurance. They don't believe the middle. They think the world will become more disordered, and sometimes they are right. Asset prices are not distributed in as ordered a way as height is. Extreme events such as market crashes are more frequent than normal distributions suggest. Volatility has been remarkably low in stocks, bonds and currencies. Viruses, populism, trade wars, papal abdications and royal bust-ups. Nothing seems to move the needle much. But no one can be sure how long the age of placidity will last. People with squeegee-clean third eyes insist that vol must eventually go up. They blame central banks, which have relaxed monetary policy whenever markets panic, for suppressing volatility. The central bankers have been free to do so because inflation, their main obsession, has gone missing. A revival in inflation will one day force them to stop managing the markets. That is the big bet of options buyers. In the meantime, the standard investor will keep his two eyes firmly on the middle. Thanks for listening to Editor's Picks. To read or listen to the whole of this week's edition, go to economist.com slash radio offer. I'm Edward McBride, and in London, this is The Economist. What do bioscience and big data have to do with Iowa? More than you probably think. Iowa invites you to discover career opportunities in today's most cutting-edge industries. From startups to establishments, businesses across the state are pairing new technology with daring ideas, investing in bold visionaries, supporting driven doers, establishing the workforce of tomorrow today. This is Iowa. Don't limit your dream job to the imagination. Make it happen here. Explore Iowa for yourself at thisisiowa.com.